Good evening, everyone, and, and welcome. Um, first things first, could I just say there's a, a reception following this event in the director's dining room, no less. Um, those of you who are not used to such salubrious locations, um, it's on the fifth floor of, of the old building, which is on Houghton Street. So I hope as many people can attend that as possible. Uh, this is the third Gilbert Murray lecture on classics and internationalism. And I'd like, by way of introduction, to say a few words about Gilbert Murray uh, and the Gilbert Murray Trust, and a particular warm welcome to members of the Gilbert Murray Trust, past and present, who are in the audience today. Um, Gilbert Murray was one of the foremost classicists of his generation. He was professor uh, he was appointed professor of Greek at the University of Glasgow at the age of 23, uh, and I'm glad that one of his successors is in the audience today. And he went on to hold the Regis Professorship of Greek at the University of Oxford for more than 20 years. His works include the classical tradition in poetry, uh, Aristophanes, a study, and Euripides and his age, uh, a marvellous little book, uh, which is still in print over a hundred years after it was first published. But he was also a prominent internationalist. Uh, indeed, he was one of the foremost liberal internationalists uh, in Britain during the interwar period. He played a large part in the establishment of international relations as an academic field of study. Uh, he represented in practical international affairs South Africa in two League of Nations uh, General Assembly sessions, though he was not South African. Um, in fact, he was Australian uh, of Irish descent, uh, though he always saw himself as British. Uh, complex identities are not an entirely new phenomenon. Uh, he was founder and chairman of the League of Nations Union, the precursor of the United Nations Association. He also chaired the League's International Committee for Intellectual Cooperation, uh, the precursor of today's UNESCO, a body which included among its membership uh, Bartok, Einstein and Curry. While performing these and many other public roles, he found the time, somehow found the time, to publish widely on international affairs. Uh, and perhaps his two most prominent works are The Ordeal of This Generation uh, and From the League to the United Nations. Now, the Gilbert, Gilbert Murray Trust uh, was set up to commemorate Murray's long life of activity and scholarship in the field, the fields of classics and international affairs. It supports a wide variety of projects each year relating to the study of ancient Greek, ancient Greek language, culture and civilization. It also provides research grants, uh, travel scholarships and so on to students of international relations. Uh, to support projects relating to the work and purposes uh, of the United 
nations. So uh, I would like to take this opportunity to point out that applications open on the 1st of January. So if there are any students among you who have a project or contemplating a project related to the UN, then do apply for funding. Uh, applications from the LSE are um, uh, rather curiously low. Um, now, moving on to, to tonight's speaker. Um, it is some measure of the stature of Gilbert Murray's name uh, that we've managed to attract someone today to give the lecture all the way from the other side of the Strand. <laughs> A very considerable psychological distance. Uh, Matt Spadal is one of Britain's and indeed Norway's leading authorities on the United Nations and international security. He began his IR career here at the LSE. He was uh, an undergraduate student. His supervisor was the uh, late and great Philip Windsor. Matt got to pay his debt to, to Philip by editing a wonderful collection of his uh, essays, studies on international uh, relations, and in the posthumous publication of Philip Windsor's last work, uh, edited with Spiris Economides, uh, entitled Strategic Studies and Introduction and a Farewell. Matt's moved from the LSE to Oxford to read for a DPhil. Between 2000 and 2003, he was Director of Studies at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. And since 2003, he's been Professor of Security and Development at King's. His numerous publications include Ending War, Consolidating Peace, Peacebuilding After War, and UN Interventionism. Now, since its inception, the UN's inception, there have been waves of optimism and pessimism about its role in international politics. Uh, and it, we're currently, it seems to me, in a pessimistic wave. Maybe this is justified. Uh, maybe it's a product of unrealistic expectations. Uh, but I can think a few better pe people than Mats Badal uh, to explore these questions this evening. So I'm delighted, Mats, to have you with us. Uh, to talk on power politics and the humanitarian impulse, the United Nations in the post-Cold War era. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, uh, Peter. Um, I thought I would start, before I delve into the substance of my lecture, with an observation that Gilbert Murray made a few years after the Second World War as he reflected on some of the um, bitter lessons and disappointments of the recent past. He was musing upon the reasons why the work of the International Committee uh, of, Inter of Intellectual Cooperation, to which Peter just referred, a body that was set up by the League of Nations in 1922. He was wondering why it had not been properly recognized in England. And he wrote, perhaps it is true that we in England mostly think of professors as eccentric characters, 
suitable for comedy, whereas in Latin countries they are thrilled by them and named streets after them. <laughs> Now, I hope that my um, remarks this evening will not, in the eyes of the audience, lend further credence to what Murray suspected was a distinctly Anglo-Saxon view of professors as eccentric characters suitable for comedy. <laughs> so with that, let me uh, get to the substance. Now, in 1948, Gilbert Murray brought together in a single volume a collection of lectures which he had delivered at various universities throughout the country over the past 14 years, entitled From League to the United Nations. This collection covered, in his own words, the period between the weakening of the first great experiment in world management by international conference and the setting up of the second. Now, by the mid-50s, that is some seven years later, Murray appears to have concluded that the second experiment too, that is the United Nations, much like the League of Nations before it, had failed or was at best very far from delivering on its promise. Giving the annual David Davis Memorial Lecture in 1955, Murray, now nearly 90 years of age, was again looking ahead to the moment when, as he put it, we shall have once more, and in clearer form, some of the great opportunities which again and again in the past governments have let slip. Now, the end of the Cold War was widely viewed at the time, and is still viewed by many, as having provided the best opportunity yet for breathing life into or resuming the great experiment that is the United Nations. A chance, finally, to make it the linchpin of a more centrally regulated world order. As the Secretary General at the time, Boutrous Ghali, put it in his Agenda for Peace, his ambitious and oft-cited report on the future of the organization, commissioned by the Security Council in 1992, an opportunity has been regained to achieve the great objectives of the Charter. An opportunity, he added, which must not be squandered. Now, my aim this evening is twofold. First of all, I want to explore, as Peter said, and assess the role of the United Nations in the field of peace and security after the Cold War, approaching it as the great opportunity to which Gilbert Murray, disillusioned by the state of the world and indeed increasingly of the United Nations itself, towards the end of his life, was still looking forward. I will do this by focusing in particular on what has been called the humanitarian impulse. And by this, for the purpose of my argument tonight, I understand broadly the attempt to transform international relations by promoting liberal and solidarist values in extremists through the use of force. An effort that involved qualifying the sanctity of those principles of the UN Charter seen as foundational to order between states that is, sovereignty and the, the rule of non-intervention, an effort that involved or sought to shift the balance of priorities in the UN's work towards <coughs> justice-related provisions of the Charter, including human rights, 
and the promotion of democracy, a shift which necessarily entailed that the tension be turned to what happens within the domestic jurisdiction of states, and ultimately that focuses on individuals. That's the first thing I want to do, but I also, and this is my second point, I want to link this discussion of the UN in the post-Cold War era to some of the central themes and preoccupations that run through Gilbert Murray's writings on international relations. I want, if you like, to demonstrate the relevance or enduring value of his writings on the first and second experiment to an understanding of the fate of the third. Now, both of these aims require further explanation, so let me say a few more words and say a bit more about the precise focus of my, my remarks, and in particular elaborate on the connection that I wish to make between the themes of Murray's thought on international relations and the UN's role in peace and security. First of all, looking at the second great, or the resumption of the great experiment. Now, there are, and as will become clearer, I think, as I speak, some problems in treating the end of the Cold War as a watershed moment in this way. That is, as a moment comparable to the attempts that were made to establish a new world order after the First and Second World Wars. Most obviously, the third experiment, or if you like, the resumption of the second, did not follow the end of actual wars whose horrors and levels of destruction had brought what Murray might have put, the way Murray might have put it, civilization to the brink of collapse. The end of the Cold War was not followed by a formal settlement and a conscious attempt, as was done in however flawed a fashion at Versailles or Dumbarton Oaks, to set up a new machinery that would help preserve the peace. The fact also that previous attempts, the previous experiments were undertaken against the immediate backdrop of two catastrophic breakdowns of the state system into war also meant that the prime concern in 1919 and 1945, and indeed the prime concern of Gilbert Murray himself, was to avoid another war between states. The kind of war which, in the evocative opening lines of the United Nations Charter, had twice in our lifetime brought untold sorrow to mankind. As I will go on to discuss, of course, since the late 1980s, the problem of war and the use of force has presented itself for the UN and its member states rather differently. How to address and how to respond to civil war situations or internal conflict where the issues of justice and not just intrastate order have been seen to be at stake. Indeed, where the force can be used for humanitarian purposes to protect human rights and even to promote democracy. And yet, even though uh, there is a sense in which the first, second and third period can't be compared uh, in a perfect sort of structural sense, there are other reasons why I think assessing contemporary and more recent development in lights of, of what Murray was concerned about in From League to the United Nations is still illuminating. First of all, while nuclear conflagration was mercifully avoided, the world had lived under the shadow of nuclear extinction since the 1950s. And while the United Nations did find ways of adapting to the realities of Cold War, those realities clearly could not but place constraints 
on its ability to fulfil the ambitions of the Charter, not least uh, its justice-related provisions. With the end of the Cold War, it was widely felt, also in academic writing, that there might now finally uh, be a chance to realise the hope and expectations uh, of 1945 the sense of being on the threshold of the new era, even if, as I shall argue later, this distracted attention away from underlying continuities in international politics that have reasserted themselves and indeed never really went away. There is perhaps one other parallel I want to flag and reason for comparing these. While there were no formal victors or enemy nations at the end of the Cold War, Viewed as an extended struggle between competing social systems, one had clearly come out on top. The end of the Cold War marked the triumph of democracy and the market, as communist rule and system of government collapsed with startling speed. And this gave rise to an unprecedented democratic optimism, to quote another former member of the department, James Mayo, in the West. A belief, in some quarters, a firm conviction that the spread of Western liberal democracy and the triumph of the market would provide the basis for a new world order. A master idea, perhaps, not unlike Woodrow Wilson's brand, and his brand of liberal internationalism, hoping that the application of the principle of national self-determination would do the same after the First World War. And this brings me to Gilbert Murray's writings on international relations and their continuing relevance. Although, as we already heard, uh, Gilbert Murray was not a professor, and probably a good thing, of international relations, <laughs> nor a, a theorist in the way we use the term today, Murray is associated, when he is included in accounts of the discipline, with the idealist, or what E.H. Carr pejoratively termed the utopian face of theorizing about international relations, which dominated the period between the two world wars variously described as a school, a vision, an approach, a tradition or a paradigm, there is, as revisionist scholars of the discipline, of the historiography of the discipline, uh, among which Peter is a prominent member, there is much more nuance and complexity to the idealist label and the positions held by interwar internationalists, including that of, of Gilbert Murray, than E.H. Carr in particular would have us believe. Leaving that aside for the moment, and for my more limited purposes here, as a broad category, or as a broad church, if you like, those with, associated with the idealist tradition can fairly be viewed as having shared a series of closely connected and overlapping beliefs in the power of reason to overcome international conflict, in progress, or certainly the possibility thereof, if not its inevitability, in the importance of law and morality as sources of state conduct, in the transformative effects and value of international cooperation, in the existence, if only latent, of a basic harmony of interest among states, and for many of them also in the power of enlightened public opinion. The list is not exhaustive and is no doubt contested. But from these beliefs flowed also a series of prescriptions or policy priorities or causes with which idealism is closely identified, notably collective security, the importance of strengthening international law, 
the creation of international institutions that would facilitate international cooperation in a range of different fields, including the peaceful settlement of disputes. The application of reason in pursuit of these objectives would help overcome what the calamity of 1914 and 1918 had shown at a horrific cost to be the most central and most urgent of challenges facing states, namely the problem of war. Now, I've already hinted that the stereotype of the interwar idealist has been effectively challenged by revisionist scholars. And even so, there is no doubt that many of the criticisms, some of them fundamental, leveled against them, were apposite and valid. Chief among them, and one which applies to Murray as well, was a failure to engage with the realities of power and hierarchy in international relations, and closely linked to that, to explore more critically and systematically the drivers and motivations of state behavior. Another recurring criticism was that their writings all too often tended to confuse aspiration with analysis and that consequently their judgments were forever at the mercy of their desires. This inbuilt tendency towards advocacy was to some extent inevitable, for as Hedley Ball put it, idealist writers saw it as their responsibility as students of international relations to support the march of progress, to overcome ignorance, the prejudices, the ill will and the sinister interest that stood in its way. Consequently, Hedley Bull went on, idealists were remarkable really only for their intense commitment to a particular vision of what would happen. And that was the basis for his uncompromising verdict on their lasting contribution to IR thinking, that it was really only of interest, uh, their writings, um, for the light that it cast on the preoccupations and presuppositions of its time and place. Now, this conclusion, I, looking at Murray, propose to challenge, and certainly I propose to qualify it in two respects. First of all, there is more nuance and subtlety to the writings, including Murray, than they are given credit, even if sometimes it has to be teased out of their writings. I think part of the problem here is because the line between aspiration and analysis is indeed blurred, because they were, as someone put it, gifted amateurs, because they saw themselves as campaigners as much as scholars in the nascent field of international relations, because of all this, evaluating their work against a strict standard of consistency and intellectual coherence is always going to be problematic, or put differently, it is only going to take you so far. The case of Murray, I think, suggests that it is possible to recognize failings, difficulties in its approach to international politics, but also to recognize that aspects are of more lasting value. The second way in which I propose the challenges, of course, is that the fact, as Hedley Bull says, that their writings are a function of their time and context is undoubtedly true, but that certainly isn't unique to this body of writing. The important point here is that the issues with which Murray and other idealists grappled have not gone away. 
that their concerns are still some of our concerns, even though there are weakness in their failing in their in their understanding of politics, international politics. The very act of engaging with uh, their work makes us uh, think more deeply about the subject. I will now just flag before I start with the UN, the three themes or preoccupations that run through Gilbert Murray's engagement, uh, to which I will return later, um, but which I would argue are still our preoccupations. I have already alluded to them in my initial remarks. They are, first of all, the problem of war and the use of force. Second, the role and workings of international organizations. And thirdly, the relationship between democracy, its promotion, and international order. I will return to them more explicitly, as I said, towards the end of my talk. Now, just to reiterate, my intention is not to assess whether Murray's writings in respect of these issues has aged well. It is rather to see how his reflections, observations, and insights in relation to those help stimulate our thinking on aspects of contemporary international relations. Let me now start, uh, get on to the UN after the Cold War and the humanitarian impulse. Now, if the beginnings of the great experiment at the UN were to be linked to a specific or perhaps a better a symbolic event, the 7th of December 1989, um, a little less than a month after the first breach of the Berlin Wall, would be my preferred uh, candidate. At 10 o'clock that day, Michael Gorbachev, General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, stepped onto the rostrum of the United Nations General Assembly, the first Soviet leader to do so since Khrushchev, preparing to address a hushed and expectant audience. Now, Gorbachev would later describe the speech as a watershed moment in his attempt to show, and I quote from his memoirs, show that the international community, that mankind was on the threshold of a fundamentally new era. The traditional principles governing international relations, which were based on balance of power and rivalry, had to be superseded by relations founded on creative cooperation and joint development. The following day, the New York Times editorial, no less, wrote, perhaps not since Woodrow Wilson presented his 14 points, or since Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill promulgated the Atlantic Charter in 1948, has a world figure demonstrated the vision displayed yesterday at the United Nations. Now, the fact that few of you can probably recall the speech is perhaps itself an interesting comment on the third great experiment. But I mention it only to show how high were the hopes for a new beginning. Hopes that have to be understood against the background of how far the UN appeared to have been moved, to have moved in a short period of time. Indeed, four years before this, um, Peter will know about this, and Nicholas as well, in this very department, uh, Professor Fred Northridge was putting the finishing touches on his history of the League of Nations. And in the preface to that book, 1985, he wrote, Yet today, after 40 years, in which peace has been precariously maintained, the United Nations is almost as much a lost cause as the League was in the 1930s. <laughs> so that provides part of the explanation uh, to this, this optimism. Now, even before Gorbachev's speech, of course, optimism about the UN had grown steadily, fortified by some very real achievements. 
Since 1985, the Security Council had taken a constructive role in helping to settle long-standing regional disputes in Asia, the Middle East, Africa, and Central America. The successful deployment of UN peacekeepers in aid of these efforts raised expectations about the future role of the organization, encouraging the view that the instrument of peacekeeping could now, in the absence of Cold War competition between the permanent five members on the Council, could perhaps now be expanded in new and more ambitious ways. Perhaps even abandoning the requirement of consent that had been a cornerstone of peacekeeping, that is consent from the parties corner, uh, to, the, to a dispute, a cornerstone of peacekeeping since its inception in favour of coercion or coercive action. That particular view that we should explore whether peacekeeping can be more proactive, even taking the initiative in the use of force, was nourished, I believe, by an event which proved especially important in terms of generating optimism for the future organisation. And that was the Security Council response to and the broad coalition created as a result of Iraq's aggression against Kuwait in 1990. Throughout the 1990s, what I referred to initially and broadly as the humanitarian impulse was reflected in a growing salience given to human rights, the rule of law and democracy promotion as legitimate basis for involvement in the internal affairs of states and also reflected the emphasis of what the United Nations Development Programme for the first time in 1994 dubbed human security. Now, human security is a broad and all-encompassing term which soon became a convenient shorthand capturing the shift in scholarly preoccupations as well as in the foreign policy priorities of Western governments in particular away from the traditional focus on the security of states to that of quote-unquote ordinary people. This more quote-unquote people-centered approach was expressly concerned with human life and dignity. And of course it inevitably brought to the fore questions relating to internal governance and domestic affairs of states. It was against this background that a colleague of mine now in the Department of War Studies, Lawrence Friedman, wrote in 1998, surveying the field, the inheritors of the idealist traditions in international relations are riding the tide of history. Now, the most visible expression of this uh, humanitarian impulse was the dramatic increase in the scale, scope, and transformative ambition of field operations launched by the United Nations. While the peacekeeping disasters and horrors of Somalia, Rwanda and Srebrenica were followed by a period of soul-searching, any retrenchment from the involvement on humanitarian grounds proved temporary. In fact, both the genocide in Rwanda and the fall of Srebrenica strengthened the hand of those who now stress the conditional nature of sovereignty and its corollary, the rule of non-intervention. Towards the end of the decade, two developments in particular appeared to confirm that shift. One was the first meeting of the Security Council in a session devoted specifically to the protection of civilians in armed conflict. It now meets every year. And second, seemingly still more significant, of course, was a decision by Western powers through NATO in March 1999 
a decision taken without explicit authorization from the Security Council to launch a bombing campaign against the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. That was a violation, at least on a literal reading of the Charter, of the Charter, a violation justified, quote-unquote, on the grounds of overwhelming humanitarian necessity. Now, NATO's humanitarian war, as Adam Roberts called it in an article, uh, the justification given for it and the campaign itself could not but generate controversy and resistance within the international society at large. And of course, in its aftermath, attention was increasingly drawn among scholars and governments to the dangers inherent in any Western-led military action in particular aimed at advancing humanitarian objectives. Concerns familiar to all of those who take in an interest in the discussion around humanitarian interventions were expressed about the dangers of abuse, cloaking narrowly interest-based intervention in humanitarian principles, the dangers of selectivity, focus on some cases while ignoring others, and of inconsistency, evoking humanitarian goals only when these suited would-be interveners. Now, these concerns intensified, of course, dramatically after the events of 9-11 and the American-led wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, which profoundly changed both the terms and the geopolitical context of the debate about the basis for intervention in internal affairs of states, marking to many the return of power politics. Even so, and this is, I think is an important point to make, even so, the humanitarian impulse did not cease with the events of 9-11. That is clear partly from the continuing increasing number of UN missions launched on humanitarian grounds, but also in the continuing debate about the rights and wrongs of humanitarian intervention, with the terms of the debate, if not its substance, reframed after Kosovo to focus on intervention for human protection purposes, trying to take the political sting out of the debate, what soon came to be known as the responsibility to protect now, the central idea underlying the responsibility to protect is that individual states and, should they fail, the international community through the United Nations have a responsibility to protect populations from genocide, war crimes, ethnic cleansing and crimes against humanity. That particular formulation, which I just read for you, was endorsed by member states, by the General Assembly, at the United Nations 60th anniversary in 2005, and for many, its inclusion in the final summit document marked the high point of the normative shift underway since the end of the Cold War. So what are we to make of this? A new solidarist consensus? A transformation of international relations? Well, on the one hand, clearly, the readiness to contemplate the use of force for humanitarian ends, even without Security Council authorization, and the commitment in principle to responsibility to protect, did reflect a shift in normative boundaries. It does not, however, amount, or it did not amount to a radical transformation of international relations. And there are two points I wish to make here about the period between 1992 and 2005 to qualify, if you like, the idea that a solid risk consensus has emerged. First of all, a careful look at the motivations and drivers behind decisions regarding intervention and the use of force 
show that even though undertaken ostensibly for humanitarian purposes, inevitably they reflect an uneasy coexistence of altruistic motives with interest-based and power-political considerations on the part of intervening powers and coalitions. A few examples. In 1994, the Union Security Council authorized Operation Restore Hope, the only operation of its kind, as it, uh, incidentally, to actually restore democracy in Haiti. That was designed to remove the junta that had overthrown the regime of Jean Bertrand Aristide. But of course, this decision was also driven by electoral politics in Florida and by fairly traditional spheres of influence thinking. East Timor, the result of that was independence and the end of colonial rule by Indonesia. And the lead was taken by Australia which also, of course, had powerful interests at stake. And finally, Kosovo was certainly partly about stopping ethnic cleansing uh, by the Serb uh, security forces, but also, as NATO Secretary General acknowledged himself, it was about NATO's credibility as an alliance. So that's the first way to qualify it. The second, I think, is that the humanitarian impulse, particularly in the 1990s, uh, was a function of a distinctive set of geopolitical circumstances that gave the council, Security Council decision-making a particular dynamic, if you like, uh, one that is different from today. It was common, if you went to the UN in the 90s, to hear about the P3, the permanent three members rather than permanent five, the implication being that these three Western powers on the Council drove the process of decision-making. That was partly, of course, because both China and Russia were preoccupied with domestic political issues, especially in the 1990s, so their passivity uh, in relation to some of these intervention debates did not signal in any way that they had internalized solidarist values. This was also a time, of course, and that is another important issue, before the so-called emerging powers, as we still talk of them today, had assumed a greater voice. I'm thinking of India, Brazil, and South Africa, among others. Uh, and, of course, this was also before uh, the great reputational damage suffered by the US and the UK and other Western powers of Iraq and Afghanistan. And this has changed. And the extent to which it has changed, of course, became very evident following NATO's military operation, again for humanitarian purposes, a bit more than 10 years on, in this case in Libya. Now, the course and the conduct and the outcome of that operation had the effect, even more so than Kosovo 11 years earlier, of reigniting controversy over the use of force for humanitarian purposes. Let me say a few words about how to read that operation and, and the lessons from it. The fact that it has become so divisive, of course, is slightly ironic because the immediate reaction, especially among those who are most ardent proponents of the responsibility to protect, was to view the Libya operation as a successfully passed test case in the evolution of a new norm. In fact, in May 2011, the Secretary General himself Ban Ki-moon, by now, confidently presented what was happening in Libya as a watershed in the emerging doctrine of responsibility to protect. Already by this time, however, of course, Russia, China, and prominent members 
of the G77, the group of 77, serving on the council at the time, South Africa, Brazil and India had publicly reached a very different conclusion, a conclusion that was fairly captured by China in the General Assembly in 2011. No party should engage in regime change or get involved in civil war in the name of protecting civilians. It's a sort of theme you keep hearing these days. Now, inevitably, that perception, although I should add that it rests on what is hardly an ingenious or disinterested reading of events, has adversely affected attempts uh, to move the whole debate on humanitarian operations and protection forward. More faithfully, it has been argued, it has weakened the Security Council's effort to respond meaningfully to other civil wars and mass atrocity crimes in Syria. And to many, <clears throat> the period since then has brought the very idea of what I call the third experiment, or the resumption of the second experiment, to an end, signalling a return to the period in which considerations of power and interest are again reigning supreme in international relations. Now, how accurate is that a reading of developments? I earlier rejected the view that the solidarist consensus has emerged. Am I going to the opposite extreme? I think the fact that the responsibility to protect was referred to in the UN document in 2005, and all the events since, including Libya, clearly shows that the idea of a general right of humanitarian intervention has not been widely endorsed by member states. Nonetheless, I would argue, there is still an important sense, and you may not share this, but I think the case is worth making, there is an important sense in which the clock cannot be turned back, however much this may be a regret to some or to some countries. Now, while it's difficult to pin this down precisely, I think I can usefully illustrate it by one historical reference and saying a little bit more about the decision over Libya. On the history first, back in early 1979, the Security Council debated Vietnam's invasion of Cambodia. Vietnam invaded Cambodia in December 1978, and one result of that invasion was to bring an end to the genocide in, in Cambodia. Now, at the time, Norway, and a reference has been made to Norway already, and Norwegian, Norway at the time was already a self-styled humanitarian superpower. <laughs> Norway, was, Norway was on the Security Council during these debates as a non-permanent member. And Norway was unequivocal in stressing that the domestic policies of Pol Pot's regime, genocidal regime, were entirely irrelevant to any assessment of the rights and wrongs of Vietnam's action. Indeed, Michael Akehurst, who produced, I think, the book on international law that I read when I was an undergraduate student here, Michael Akehurst concluded at a seminar in Oxford in 1984 that looking at the debates on Cambodia provides some evidence that there is now a consensus among states in favor of treating humanitarian intervention as legal, illegal, sorry, full stop. My point here is that that kind of argument cannot be made today. 
This shows that the manner in which a government and rulers behave towards their own populations is not simply a matter of domestic concern. More than that, massive violations of human rights demand an international response. Now, this is a presumption, difficult to pin down, but one which has been growing in strength over the past two decades. And I would argue, and this is where I come back to Libya, it is also confirmed by a closer look at the context and decisions leading up to the adoption of the resolution which authorised air action over Libya. That context, that I think is important to stress, was one of rapidly changing, confused and deteriorating humanitarian situation on the ground, played out against the backdrop of Gaddafi's stated intention that he would show no mercy and no compassion to the citizens of Benghazi as he was, or so it seemed, preparing to overrun the city. Against that background, what drove France and the UK to press for action in Libya was not, was not that it represented a defining test case for their responsibility to protect. It was not part of a deliberate strategy to affect regime change in Libya. It was simpler and more immediate than that. In the words of one very senior official involved, it was all about avoiding another Srebrenica in North Africa. So the prospect of large-scale massacres simply could not be ignored, even if Russia and China, who chose to abstain rather than veto the resolution. And more significantly than that, I think, is that the previous month, as violence was deteriorating and escalating in Libya, both countries, or indeed the entire Security Council, unanimously and this includes South Africa, Brazil and India, voted in favour of a very, very harsh Security Council resolution against Gaddafi, urging him to meet his responsibility to protect population. And in many ways, that resolution is more interesting than the second one. That was a resolution also under Chapter 7, clearly implying that further action would be taken. Now, what does all of this mean? And I don't want to take it too far. What I think it means is that the issue of the use of force and intervention in defense of human rights, quite especially when mass atrocity crimes are being committed or look certain to being committed, are likely to come back to the Security Council, even though plainly broader concerns about how the standards to be applied, how to enforce it and under whose authority will not go away. And it is also true that in addition to those concerns I mentioned earlier about selectivity and abuse, other developments since 2011, including most notably a further deterioration of east-west relations following Russia's annexation of Crimea, and also, of course, a rapidly diminishing appetite for Western involvement in some zones of conflict after the sobering experience of Afghanistan, all of this makes it more difficult still to see the Council agreeing on military action or any kind of action in the support of humanitarian purposes. So in some sense, great power politics has reasserted itself, and, and some would say with a vengeance. And yet, I just leave you with this. In April 2014, that is one month after the annexation of Crimea, relations between East and West at the Nader, if you like, one month afterwards, in April, the Security Council again unanimously decides to create a new large-scale peacekeeping operation for the Central African Republic. 12,000 troops under Chapter 7 of the Charter. 
and it did so in response to multiple violations of international humanitarian law and widespread human rights abuses there. And it placed the protection of civilians at risk from mass atrocity crimes at the centre of its mission. Now, what might Gilbert Murray have said of this? Well, first, uh, he might have repeated what perceptively he also observed, and I didn't quote that, of the second experiment. He said, even if, like most human effort, it ends in a confused mixture, mixture between success and failure, it's one of those things with Murray Afan in reading him. You come across his very perceptive and insightful observations, which qualify some of the dogmatism of the other ones. He also, of course, being a Greek scholar, uh, might have recognized the element of tragedy involved. We may be prepared to accept that the way a government treats its people is no longer exclusively a matter of domestic concern, but we are not prepared or not able to act effectively to prevent it. We are willing the ends, but not always the means. We end up creating often perverse outcomes. And the saddest comment on that, of course, is Libya today, which is in a state of civil war. I've mentioned uh, Murray, and I will now return to those three themes I flagged earlier and broaden the discussion. How does Gilbert Murray's thinking around the themes I identify, the problem of war, the role and the workings of the international organization, and democracy as a basis for international order, how do those relate to the period I have covered? In what ways, if any, do his reflections on the issues invite us, or invited me, to think more deeply about contemporary international relations and the UN's place in it? Let me start with war and the use of force. Now, anyone who reads Gilbert Murray cannot fail but to be struck by the central preoccupation throughout his writings with a problem of war. A problem, of course, or a preoccupation, of course, which is shared with so many idealists of the interwar period. And yet, as Peter Wilson has noted, despite his hatred of war and his desire to eradicate it, he nowhere attempts to analyze it systematically. So his views on war as an institution and on the use of force have, as it were, to be pieced uh, together or teased out. Now, why did I find them interesting? First of all, well, the first thing to note is that Murray was certainly not opposed to all uses of force, nor did he think that strife, fear, and ambition, as he put it in the ordeal of his generation, the other book to which I think Peter referred initially, he did not think that these were in some sense unnatural, or indeed that the ideal of peace, as he sought saw it, involved the absence of all strife or conflict, whether against obstacles or human, human opponents. He wrote, the instinct against which the League of Nations fought and are still fighting is deeply ingrained in human nature. Every living creature strives for growth, strives for power. It is for conscience and civilization that good men must vigilantly and without ceasing exert themselves, since the craving for power open or latent, is always at work in nations as in classes, statesmen, and children. Now, this does not, again, as has been marked elsewhere, conform to the stereotypical picture of an interwar idealist who believes in natural harmony of human interest. Accepting that conflict and striving for power were part of life, the real question Murray insisted was whether the continuance of war as an institution is necessary for the moral health 
of the human race. Strife, fear and ambition were all elements in human nature, but war, he insisted, was not. Nor, he added, was it an instinct, in the sense that many of Freud followers within the psychoanalytic tradition, influential in the interwar period, maintained. War, Murray wrote in the ordeal of his generation, was a state action and part of a political program. Now, Morris' frame of reference was, of course, the experience and the legacy of two world wars. Wars between states that had caused untold suffering and had brought Western, or what he called Hellenic Christian civilization, what he also called the best practical answer yet, discovered to the riddle of human life, his aim and method, to the verge of collapse. And that is the crux of his attitude towards war. It represents a mortal threat to civilization and is destructive of liberality and civilized behavior. It is almost as if war, in Murray's conception, has an independent or autonomous existence of its own, as a kind of dark force which, once unleashed, destroys civilizations. Listen to this. To sum up, this is him summing up, while of course, this he wrote in 1945, of course there are scores of grave evils in present-day European civilization. It seems to me that the outstanding evil, far beyond all others, both in its own evil and its influence in causing and increasing other evil, is simply war. The first necessity is to get rid of it, and once we have done that, great many evils will also disappear. Now, Murray's reflections on the nature of war, its cause and consequences, even if we allow for their unsystematic nature, are problematic in two respects. But they also, in important ways, give pause for thought as we consider war and the use of force in contemporary international relations. Problems. First of all, again, as has been remarked of many interwar uh, internationalists, uh, his understanding of aggression is overly legalistic. He appears to assume that aggression leading to war was always clear-cut and easy to ascertain, when even in his own time, let alone in, well, since the 1990s, this proved not to be the case. And this, of course, was a failing common to many champions of the League of uh, Collective Security System. I did add in a footnote to myself here, of course, just to qualify that, it is also wrong to suggest now that we live in an era of civil wars, which is a commonplace to go to the other extreme. What we have is often a mixture of the two. And also, even if aggression is fraught with definitional problems, it does not mean that there are no clear-cut cases. Iraq 1990, Crimea March 90, uh, 2014. Um, the second issue, the second problem, but also food for thought, is that Murray's hatred of war, his eagerness to save civilization, and particularly his conception of it as an outstanding evil far beyond all other evils, does lead him at times to some questionable or problematic conclusions. In particular, it leads him to ignore or underestimate the role and power of ideas and ideology as causes of evil and drivers of state behavior. In 1945, he writes, the only, the only ideology that is worth fighting against is the ideology of war itself. 
And he writes this at the time where the Nazi program of extermination is being implemented with murderous efficiency throughout uh, Europe. To him, war itself is the supreme evil, not the objectives and the murderous intent of the regime that has resorted to it. Now, the relevance of these reflections to this period, I think, can be seen in the debate about war as a means of achieving supposedly liberal goals, including the use of force to prevent mass atrocity crimes. On the one hand, the American-led wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, in particular, cannot but induce extreme caution if not downright cynicism, about any scheme to transform politically and culturally complex societies by means of external intervention and force of arms in the name, or some at least, of bringing democracy to the Middle East. In Iraq since 2003, a strong case can be made for Murray's view that war can have a profound influence in causing and increasing other evil. That said, against the realities of what occurred in Rwanda, and Srebrenica, the question remains whether the, what you might call the, or what has been called the inherent illiberality of war might sometimes have to be set up against even more illiberal consequences perhaps of inaction. There is a further sense here in which I think Murray's reflections are relevant for us today on war, that is. His conception of war, his concern about the effects on individuals and on society, on what he called the moral degradation and debasement which needs must accompany modern war, should make us perhaps pause and consider the corrosive effects of war on society. War does things to people. And in Murray's words, a prolonged state of war with this unwholesome strain, and I quote, and its extraordinary reversal of moral values has a terrible effect upon mankind. Now this is an important message in an age when the resort to war has in some ways been unprecedented. In this country, in the period I have covered from the early 90s, the UK has gone to war no fewer than six or seven times, depending on how you count it. And we are entitled to ask what the effects of war are on society, just as we should, before going to war, ask ourselves what we hope to achieve with war or the use of force, as distinct from what we think use of force can do. Next theme, the role and workings of international organisation. If there's one area where the post-Cold War period has seemed to vindicate idealists to some extent... Uh, it is the growth and growing importance of international cooperation on a range of global and transnational issues within international forums and organizations, most notably within the United Nations. Both the intensity of discussion and the actions taken on issues ranging from climate change, drugs control, infectious disease, and humanitarian action aimed at mitigating the consequences of war, conflict, and natural disaster has never been greater. 120,000 or thereabout UN peacekeepers are still deployed on 15 missions around the world today, and the specialized agencies are as active as never before. So for all the talk of the UN's failures, Peter's initial point, uh, its role as a central service agency for international society has in some ways never been greater. Hence the question we sometimes ask our students, if the UN didn't exist, it would have to be invented, discuss. 
Now, it's fair to say that Murray um, foresaw the possibility and likelihood of these developments, and he did so partly in light of the underrated achievements of the League of Nations in this area, or in the non-political and technical area. That said, <clears throat> the record and achievements of achievements and the effectiveness of the UN, of course, when it comes to actually policy outcomes, is decidedly mixed. And the reasons for this are worth examining. And I do think that Murray, in his treatment of the UN to some extent after 45, but also the League of Nations, and idealists uh, more generally, also the inheritors of the idealist tradition, it does suffer from one major weakness. Uh, and as I said, it's replicated in much of the earlier writing on the UN after the Cold War. And this is the failure, I think, to appreciate the intensely political character of the organization and its inseparability, or the, or the inseparability of its workings from international politics. And that leads to a disposition, and here I think Hedley Bull is right, to accept the externals of international relations at face value. The UN, and this almost can't be said enough, as Nicholas will know, is an intergovernmental organization, not an embryonic world government. It consists of 193 legally equal states that do not recognize any overarching or supranational authority. Otherwise, these states display enormous diversity in terms of political forms, culture, and historical experience. And very importantly to understand today's UN, that historical experience for the majority of member states includes a recent history of colonial rule by a foreign power, an experience whose impact, real and psychological, is critical to an understanding not just of the diplomatic reflexes, but also in a deeper sense to their behavior in the international system. And what these things all add up to is well captured, I think, by Conor Cruz O'Brien, Another person, incidentally, who was neither a professor of IR nor a theorist, but whose writings on UN are deeply illuminating. He said, the very word organization is deceptive in that it suggests a disciplined, coordinated effort to reach some concrete end, like producing motor cars or paying judges or policemen, while the United Nations, in fact, moves under the stress of conflicting impulses in a rather chaotic ways towards end which are defined only in the most general terms and the precise definition of which the highest management is permanently divided. And reading uh, through some of Murray's work on this one is often struck, as I said, by the failure to take on board uh, what you might call the political dimension. He says of the League, experience has shown that even difficult questions can be settled if they are removed from a political atmosphere to a judicial, judicial disinterested atmosphere. How easy is it to do that? Can it be done at all? Of the World Disarmament Conference in 1932, he said, every technical problem had been solved and only the political problems remain. Indeed, there is a rub. Uh, and I'm afraid, um, and I can come back to that in questions, Murray would have been sad to see what has become of UNESCO, uh, the successor organization to the Committee of Intellectual Cooperation, uh, which recently, for political reasons, has been plunged into its worst crisis since it was set up. 
and the reason for that was entirely down to politics. The United States Congress deciding to withdraw funding in protest at giving the Palestinian Authority membership of the body. Let me move to the third theme and then very quickly sum up. The third theme was democracy, democratic optimism and international order. Now this is an area where arguably a careful reading of Murray gives the greatest pause for thought. There was in the early 1990s a strong and widespread belief occasioned in part by the speed and generally peaceful nature of the collapse of communist rule a belief that the spread of democracy and allied to it, capitalism or the market, would provide the basis for a new, more stable and peaceful order. And the most extreme articulation of that belief remains uh, Francis Fukuyama's article for Foreign Affairs in 1989, where he was suggesting that we might not actually be witnessing just the end of the Cold War, but the end of history as such. That is, the end point of man's ideological evolution and the universalization of liberal democracy as a final form of government. There are, as the intervening period and the UN's experiences in peace and security have shown, three closely connected problems with this democratic optimism. And all of these, I think, are prefigured or alluded to or implied in some of Murray's reflections, however scattered and unsystematic references to them are. First of all, Democracy in the absence of statesmanship is not necessarily a force for good in the making of policy. Murray recognized and emphasized the relationship between democracy and statesmanship. He wrote, the liberal elements typified by President Wilson were struggling at Versailles, not against kings and diplomats, he said, but against democratic statements dependent on furious peoples. In that case, sound policies are thwarted by furious peoples. But of course, the need to secure democratic legitimacy and popular support for action taken by leaders, especially with regard to the use of force, can and have also led those leaders, rather than exercising statesmanship and taking the long view, to play the populist card and distort the costs and risks of action they have proposed. The perceived need to maintain support at home can also shape decisions in ways that can produce perverse consequences. The dangers and dilemmas of all this are perhaps best captured in Elliot Cohen's witticism about the attractions of modern air power. And think how much we've been using modern air power. He said of modern air power that it's like modern courtship. It offered instant gratification without commitment. But of course, the consequences we are living with. The second point about a Murrayan democracy, Murray's favorite or preferred pairing was true civilization and liberality, not democracy and liberalism. It is true, of course, that his preference for civilization over democracy, even his preference for the Gladstonian notion of liberality over liberalism, reflected an aristocratic disposition and perhaps not a very high opinion of the common man and the fear of what democratization might bring. It is also true, however, that democracy and liberalism, of course, assumed to go hand in hand, explicitly or implicitly, when democratic optimism was at its most pronounced, does not necessarily go hand in hand. And that passion, nationalism, a sense of historical grievance whipped up by demagogic, demagogic leadership can give rise to forms 
of democracy different from our cherished Western model. Historically, democracy has had an ambivalent relationship to liberal values. The most obvious example of this today, of course, is Putin's Russia, whose annexation of Crimea as clear-cut a violation of UN Charter provisions regarding sovereignty as you can get, led to a surge of popular support for the president. Now, it may be objective, objected to this that Putin's increased authoritarianism and his control of the media make this an imperfect example. Where that is undoubtedly true, it only points to another phenomenon and what Michael Ignatieff has dubbed authoritarian capitalism. In other words, it's not only liberalism and democracy that doesn't necessarily go together, but also liberalism and capitalism. And this is especially so uh, because of the third point I wish to make, and that is perhaps, I think, one of the most important lessons to draw from the UN's involvement of the past two decades. And it is this, that while the ideal of democracy, of liberal democracy, defined not narrowly in terms of simply holding competitive elections, but broadly to include accountability, participation in politics, civil and political rights and the rule of law, while that is eminently desirable and we should hold on to it as regulative ideas, the process of democratization can be divisive and conflict-generating, especially so in economically weak and ethnically fragmented society with scant tradition of democratic politics. The results, as Spiros Economides knows, of the first free multi-party elections held throughout Yugoslavia in 1990, the first free elections showed that when in addition to these structural impediments I mentioned, when in addition to that the nerve of local nationalism has been prodded by ruthless, unscrupulous and self-serving politicians, the consequences can be catastrophic. As the last ambassador, American ambassador to Belgrade said, with the elections of 1990, first three elections, the age of naked nationalism begun. Let me sum up. I'm sure you want me to stop. What have I, what have I tried to do this evening? Looking at the trials and tribulations of the UN after the Cold War through the lens, or perhaps better put, aided and assisted by some of the recurring themes in Murray's thoughts, I have sought to qualify Hedley Bull's harsh verdict on the lasting value of writers associated with the, addition, with the idealist tradition. I have not rejected the main criticism against that tradition. Indeed, I have upheld what I consider to be the chief one, the hope that within a system of sovereign states whose members display enormous diversity in terms of resources, political forms, historical experience and cultural specificity, power politics cannot be transcended by an act of will. And there was a sense in much of the early writing on the prospects for revitalized UN after the Cold War that power politics uh, could indeed or was about to be uh, transcended. It never disappeared. Now this does not mean, and that's the second thing I've tried to, to emphasize, that the insights and thoughts of writers such as Murray are of no value to understanding contemporary international relations, as I've tried to show in relation to the issues of war and working with international organizations. In terms of the exam question I was given, which is on the um, posters around the corridor here that Peter gave me, 
How can the UN's mission raise humanitarian standards in the world dominated by security concerns? I have suggested two things. The UN can and has played a vital role in articulating, promoting and seeking to universalise important justice-related norms. In a speech at Ditchley in 1998, Kofi Annan insisted that sovereignty must never again serve as a licence for governments to trample on the rights of the human rights and human dignity. Member states are still deeply divided on issues of intervention. Politics is still around, but it is more difficult to use sovereignty as a licence than it has been in the past. Now, you may, of course, object and say that levels of hypocrisy on these issues have never been greater than they are at the moment. But then again, we must remember that there are many ways of looking at hypocrisy. And one way is that rather than despairing over it, we should accept that it might also, the uses of hypocrisy might be a testimony to the real social power uh, of the values, of course, behind which hypocrisy sometimes hide. What someone called the homage that buys pays to virtue. The second role that the UN has performed, I suggested, and this is what I think is its real value in a system of sovereign states, is that it remains a central service agency for the international community. And to some extent that it has done. Now, this is what I had to say. If you are still not convinced about Murray's uh, contribution to what I have tried to do, let me give you a final reason uh, for reading Murray. And, and that is really the quality and style of his writing on international relations. Uh, it is characterized, as someone put it, by a sharpness of expression, by wide erudition, and an elegance and clarity of exposition. And I make this point because it stands in marked contrast to much contemporary writing in the social sciences. Writings whose pretensions to scientific rigor results in much of what George Orwell, of course, once called avoidable ugliness. Now, while others have commented on this point and made it already, there is a further reason, I think, for reading his work, and that is that it's laced with irony, wit, and the telling anecdote, something positively discouraged if you want to produce something for the research assessment exercise. <laughs> I've already mentioned his reference to the English view or Anglo-Saxon view of professors as eccentric characters suitable for comedy, so I can't resist giving one other example. In the lecture I quoted early on that he gave in 1955, Murray was reflecting on the early days of the League of Nations movement, uh, which Peter said he was a founder. And in it he recalled early debates about the difficulty of reaching agreement on voting arrangements for the League of Nations Assembly. And this led to a discussion about whether degrees, quote-unquote, of civilization could be measured. The idea being that this would help trying to estimate the moral weight of votes. Now, while, as I've already suggested, Murray had a very clear and definite understanding of what true civilization meant, I sense that he too was skeptical about, about this idea that states, for the purpose of voting arrangements, could be given marks for a respected degrees of civilization. And I sense that from this observation, he says, one of our advisors thought that a perfectly objective standard could be devised by counting a country's wealth per head of population, expenditure on education, amount of soap consumed per head, with marks taken off for crime statistics. 
Now, we may chuckle at this, but as I read it, I was struck again by a certain parallel to the fetish for measurements and the actuarial dispositions of many within the social sciences. And I do remember as a student at the LSE in the mid-1980s being asked to read an article that purported to show, in essence, how the growth of postal traffic across borders could be measured and provide evidence of a shrinking world uh, and the emergence of the global village. So maybe there are parallels even there. My final thought uh, was prompted by rereading a, uh, and I'm mentioning it only because uh, Peter made a reference to Philip Windsor, who was a very distinguished and brilliant member of this department. And I reread uh, the obituary of Philip Windsor written by Adam Roberts at Oxford University. Now, Adam noted that while Philip had been a quote unquote technical failure as a supervisor, he owed his former supervisor and collaborator on various projects an enduring debt of gratitude for acting in accordance with his belief that the subject matter of international relations mattered more than, economic, than academic titles and procedures. Now, Murray was not an IR professor. There are failings and problems with aspects of his work, and he probably would not have been included in the REV. <laughs> but reading him does remind you what matters in the end and what should drive thinking in IR, which is a passionate engagement with the subject matter of IR with a small i and small r. And it's important not to lose sight of that. Thank you. Thank you very much, Matt, for a remarkably broad-ranging, lucid, and I think balanced and humane treatment of a difficult subject. I think Gilbert would have liked that. Uh, we've got 10 minutes for questions before we retire for a drink and some sustenance. So, um, yes, could I open it to the floor? Thank you very much. Just out of before I ask you, I was, uh, I'm a graduate of the LSE. Philip Windsor was my tutor. He actually wrote a book. I didn't read it, A Plain Man's Guide to the Energy Crisis. Uh, you have you read the book? Yes, I remember looking at it. Yes, Heinrich Hannah, my late father, published the book. So, but just out of, uh, but what I want to ask you, there's one more uh, thing. Do you, do you, have you just, you didn't just mention, or you did mention Ban Ki-moon, of all the Secretary Generals since that, could they leave? Could you say, who you think was the best one of all, of Secretary Generals of the United Nations? Should I take one or two, or take it straight away? Um, I'm happy take to that take straight away. Yeah, go on. This is on, yes. I think um, it's, it's, a, it's a very good question, uh, and it's one which frequently comes up and will come up again now as we are thinking about uh, getting a new Secretary General. I think it is very important uh, in answering that question to try to look at the particular circumstances in which any given Secretary General have found themselves. Uh, Trigvali uh, was active uh, at a time when the Soviet representative 
uh, at the UN, permanent representative, uh, was Vyshinsky. You remember, he was also the chief prosecutor in the 1930s. And Stalin died in 1953. Uh, and the Cold War was at his highest. So obviously, the geopolitical circumstances are enormously important. And I think that, to some extent, um, also... Uh, has to be brought into any assessment of Ban Ki-moon more recently. I think the real problem is precisely what the Secretary-General is meant to do. As you know, he is both a chief administrative officer of the organization to run the Secretariat, but he also has extensive, uh, certainly theoretical powers under Article 99 of the Charter to assume a political role. And very often they do assume a, an important political role, and some have interpreted their mandate differently. Some of them have been seen as you know, secular popes and so on and so forth. Uh, so I think it's important to, to be quite clear about the, what criteria are for, 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 for judging them. Um, but I would nonetheless, not trying to duck your question, say that there are certain th- things that's, that stand out. I mean, I think uh, Doug Hammarskjöld, who I know is often singled out, does deserve praise, I think, for having identified at a particular moment in the history the fact that you know, the Cold War has set in, there were limits to what the UN could do, whether the organization could adapt functionally to the realities of the Cold War. And the invention of peacekeeping was, in a sense, a response to those particular realities. And he gave it a very coherent and intellectually sharp um, uh, articulation in various reports. Of course, um, problems arose uh, when peacekeeping was applied, as we should have learned more recently uh, to a case of, of civil war in the case of Congo in 61 and 63 and 64. Uh, so, so I think that is important. Now, Kofi Annan is often viewed as having performed the role of, of a norm interpreter very well, articulating and pushing certain norms. On the other hand, he was mired in controversy towards the end of his period as well. I think what all of this suggests is we might have to revisit exactly how we choose our Secretary Generals, and of course that is one of the, one of the, uh, the strange things about the organization, the way that particular process works. But I won't, I won't go on. We can talk about it perhaps over drinks later. Thanks, Matt. Uh, Jeremy Larkins. Hello, Matt. Thanks for that. That was really interesting. Just a couple of questions, really. The first one, one of the critiques of R2P that's been voiced is that it's a, a mechanism by which Western states kind of go around the world bossing other countries into doing what they do. And your example that everyone's agreed that we can go into Chad would be an example of that insofar as, you know, there's this kind of imposition aligned with these kind of doctrines of good governance. So I guess my first response would be, is there a sort of a return to a kind of bullion pluralism in some ways? So maybe your your, posit- your positivism, your, your positive attitude is, is it to be questioned. The second question is just about the the kind of reform of the Security Council. Is there a, is there sort of a, an agenda there? There is, a, is there hope for the UN in terms of reform of the Security Council? There's my. Uh, with respect, I, oh, so, yeah. uh, with respect to the um, R2P, um, the, the first sort of criticism you make um, is, is one that has been frequently. Uh, certainly made by the Russians, by the Chinese, and also by some of the emerging powers. I mean, the point I was trying to make is that in a, uh, there is never going to be agreement uh, among member states, whether you call it humanitarian intervention or R2P, whatever you call it, never going to be agreement on the criteria to be applied for intervening on humanitarian grounds. For that, these problems of selectivity and abuse are just you know, too powerful. The point I was trying to make in relation to the R2P is that 
there has been a change which even the Russians and the Chinese when pressed, you know, they cannot walk away and see it mat doesn't matter at all what is happening within the state. And why Libya is very interesting, I'll tell you a little very funny anecdote. Um, I spoke to someone in the foreign office, I was, I was at a sort of seminar about this afterwards about the R2P. And um, and he, this gentleman, working in the, I'm sure he won't mind, worked in the research department, had gone off to Washington, New York afterwards to visit the UK mission. And this is where they had put together this particular resolution. And that resolution had to be framed in a way that would get everyone you know, on board. And my friend asked this typical academic question, you know, how important was you know, the R2P doctrine to yours or deliberations? And the response was, what, the R2P? Oh, I didn't know about that. What's that about? That was a response from the permanent uh, uh, members in New York. The point being that what they were faced with, and I think this is true, they didn't think about the consequences, and we know what Libya is like today. This, the analogy they drew was what happened in Bosnia in the 1990s. And Benghazi was about to be overrun, and something had to be done. Of course, there were all sorts of problems that came afterwards. I mean, the famous article uh, or the op-ed piece written by the four Western leaders uh, saying that this is not about regime change, but nothing will happen until Gaddafi goes. It's oxymoronic, and that's part of the problem. But I think the motivation was just that. And I think, again, the Central African Republic um, is the feeling that there is a real danger here and that we will have atrocities similar or comparable to what we had in Rwanda, and something has to be done. It is not a satisfactory answer, because we, you and I know that you know, we are willing the, the ends, but not the means. And also, this is another function of the United Nations, which I didn't flag, which is a very important one is that the UN is a very good place to dump problems. You talked about the Secretary General's Utant, we don't speak much of him, but in his memoirs he has this wonderful line where he says, great problems come to the United Nations because governments don't know what to do about them. And that is true. And that is true in this particular case. Um, now, with respect to the Reform Security Council, we can talk about it more, more, more later. I, I just think that, um, very quick point, First of all, as a practical proposition, it's extremely difficult to reform. Uh, you need two-thirds majority uh, of the General Assembly to do a substantive change, you know, increasing membership. You can do procedural change, but even that is, is quite, quite difficult. But it's also worth just remembering, uh, talking about the first and the second great experiment, which I talked about in my lecture. People talk about a more democratic UN. We talk about a more representative Security Council. That's all very well, but that's not what they intended in 1945. <laughs> it was a great power concert, recognition that, you know, if anything is going to be done in the field of peace and security, the four, the five great powers had to work together. So the idea wasn't um, to actually be representative uh, in any sense. Now, we could say that the world has changed and so on and so forth. The final issue is just really to ask, I mean, we don't believe, as you heard from me, we don't believe in laws uh, in a social science way, we don't believe it. But there's one that comes close to it. Is one what a friend of mine, Edward Locke, says that if you increase the membership of the UN body, uh, its effectiveness tends to go down. <laughs> I think there is something to that. And I wonder whether our actions, had four or five other members been on the council, uh, been uh, more efficient or not. I mean, I'm, again, there is still a problem of the legitimacy of the council, but we have to find ways of addressing it in the medium and short term. Uh, I'd like to give the final question to uh, Edith Hall, the uh, chairman, very appropriately, of the Gilbert Murray Trust. Edith. Thank you very much. It's a great honor. Well, I'd just like to say thank you uh, enormously. Um, I think it's been enormously, having just come over.
from Old Witch myself. <laughs> um, I realised it was a huge effort. It was for you. Um, and I, I think what you've really shown tonight is, um, you know, there are many people in this audience who, who are here because they like ancient Greeks and, <laughs> and the ancient Greek literature. Um, you managed to provide an extraordinarily... Um, a wide-ranging and hugely informative paper, which we could all understand. And I think that's totally in the spirit of Gilbert Murray. So thank you very much. My question is, is simply one that I wrestle with, um, with, with Gilbert Murray, and I, um, it, it, we who write about him from the classic side of it actually fight about this in the most unpacific way. <laughs> that is, at what point between about midway through 1913... And 1919, did he decide that war must never happen again? Because he's rabidly against the Boer War. Mm. Very positive about standing up for poor little Belgium. I mean, he is. By 1917, he's going around defending um, people, uh, conscientious objectors all over Britain. I mean, very vehemently. Do you have any personal understanding of how he came to his position on this almost demonic, metaphysical force of of war? Well, I think uh, it it is a... um, It's a very good question. I mean, I think... I I was prefacing my remarks on war about their... um, what I called unsystematic, not in a derogatory sort of fashion and way. And I think he writes about war uh, for different audiences and from different angles and different periods. Um, and therefore, it's difficult to... Uh, certainly, the, the, the effects of the legacy of the First World War are extremely important in creating that image. But even later on, I mean, he was not a... Def- you know, on, as I said to you earlier, um, he was certainly not opposed um, to all uses of force. And together with, um, with Robert Cecil and Philip Noel Baker, he wrote a little paper in 1934 at the time of the peace ballot uh, just to make absolutely sure that they understood they weren't against war and he said there are three reasons one is obviously the covenant of the league of nations uh, self-defense but also imperial policing and it's interesting to wonder what you know he might have thought of imperial policing today whether humanitarian intervention is a form of imperial policing Uh, and even after the second world war and this is again why i very much agree and we need to do more work on this with peter that he cannot easily be categorized as an idealist a realist and i think the realist element comes out in his treatment of individual uh, uh, contemporary ir issues and challenges and some of the things he suggests that we should worry about after 1945 is the outbreak of civil war all over Europe. And he said that might need and require intervention on the part of great powers. I mean, it sounds to me very much like... <laughs> mm. So I think it's difficult um, to, to pin down a precise moment. And of course, as you know, um, uh, again, he supported Eden over Suez. <laughs> Uh, and that comes back to the issue of, which I wasn't, I was going to say something about, but there isn't much time on this whole issue of, of empire and civilization. So I think it's difficult to pin down, but I think it's something which grows in intensity, and it depends a little bit on where and what he's writing for. And I think, as Peter said, the ordeal of his generation is a sort of a, a work which where he's thinking these issues through. It's written in 1928, obviously, and some of these essays as well that I refer to in that book sort of cover various bits of time. But I think it's a, it's a feeling that grows in time. The very last thing he says in this this point I made about the second and third experiment is that nothing will happen until we you know abolish war. So that is very very strong, but it transpires all the time. Yeah, I, I, 
Peter, my view on this. In addition to that, very briefly, um, I think it's the ghosts, uh, which was the name his children gave to the photographs that he had on his mantelpiece of colleagues uh, and students who'd fallen during the First World War for the rest of his life. In brief, it was when a war between European powers turned into a great war, a great world war, uh, and the catastrophe, moral and psychological, as well as material and in terms of human life, uh, that that war became. So very appropriately in this year of 1914, uh, I think we'll end on, on that note. Matt, Edith has said it all. Tremendous lecture, extremely lucid. We're very grateful to you. Thank you very much.